It was what was expected. It was the doxa. If you're living in the doxa, you don't see it, you know? Welcome to the October 11th, 2018 edition of the Hyperallergic Weekly Podcast, Art Movements. This episode, we're going to do something a little different and reach back into our archives. Because last October 29th, 2017, the world lost its first feminist art historian, Linda Nochlin. She was certainly much more than that title would suggest, but I think it's fair to say that most people knew her by some variation of that term. Two years ago, I had the honor of interviewing her for roughly an hour for our Women of Abstract Expressionism podcast, which at the time was going on at the Denver Art Museum. I only ended up using roughly eight minutes of my conversation with Nochlin for the final podcast. So in this episode, we're going to play the bulk of the interview to remember a figure who changed the way we look at art. We're going to allow you to hear some of her thoughts about abstract expressionism, what early feminists thought of pop art, color field, and other modernist art movements, and we'll also touch on the role of women as critics, art historians, and, of course, artists. All this will be in her own words. For this episode, we decided to use the music of Linda Nochlin's favorite composer, Johann Sebastian Bach. I discovered during our interview, she's a big fan. Johann Sebastian Bach. I'm a Bach maniac, so don't listen to me, but a lot of people think this. I think was the greatest composer who ever lived. And he was really a little retarded tear. People were already giving up polyphony and going on to harmony and to classicism and leaving the gorgeous Baroque, which nobody should ever have left. Okay, Bach, check. Then I reached out to art writer Aruna D'Souza, who's a former student of hers, and she's editing a volume of Nochlin's writing. Hi, Aruna. Hi, Rag. Nice to be talking to you today. I asked her what Nochlin was really like. Linda, for me, she was my teacher, and I will always identify myself as her student. Um, she was also my collaborator, my friend. She was like a surrogate family member for me. She was, you know, um, she was my mentor in many, many ways. What did she think about the quote-unquote art world? I'm not sure, again, that she ever was interested in the art world as a kind of, you know, collective entity. She was interested in her art world. You know, she always found something or someone to be interested in. So, you know, what was amazing is the way in which she constantly had relationships with young artists, young writers who were doing different things. She she wanted to know what was happening. She wanted to keep her pulse on it. And I don't think she ever she didn't ever get jaded or cynical about the art world because she never was invested in the art world, I think. You know, she was always invested in the stuff that drove her curiosity. She sounded like an astute teacher. You know, Linda was a person who never wanted to reproduce herself in her students. She wanted her students to find their own way, to find their own voice. And so she would, she had a very strong sense of who she could let run and who she needed to 
you know, rein in a little bit. And, you know, she was very hands off with me, uh, except at the exact moments that I needed her not to be. And she knew right then, you know, she needed to have a talk with me about, you know, getting my dissertation, you know, back on track and, you know, sort of getting done with it. And so I I remember that because I remember realizing like this is a person who knows me very well and I felt very known at that moment by her. So I I love that. And does she have a favorite memory? The thing that makes me really smile all the time is um, I got married in the late 90s in Whitefish, Montana, where, you know, I sort of spent part of my childhood and which is on the edge of Glacier National Park and whatever. And Linda came out for the wedding. And the night before the wedding, there was a rehearsal dinner party at my parents' cabin, which was on the edge of a lake. And uh, Linda walked in. She was in her, what, mid-60s at this point. She walked in. She looked at my parents and she looked out at the view and she said, you know, I'm convinced the reason that um, impressionist landscapes are so much more satisfying than American landscapes is how could American landscapists compete with this landscape? The impressionists had nothing to look at and so they could really make art out of it. And then she dropped her clothes to reveal her bathing suit and ran down the end of the dock and jumped in the lake. Um, And my parents were so impressed with this. Like this, like she comes in, makes this incredibly insightful pronouncement and then jumps in the lake and so that's my favorite memory so that's the thing that makes me smile it's like to me it embodies everything she was brilliant and vivacious and not wanting to miss out on anything and ready to take the leap whenever she felt like it so yeah on june 22nd 2016 linda knocklin invited me to her home for an interview She lived in a large apartment on Manhattan's Upper West Side. I remember being nervous as I walked up and rang the doorbell. She greeted me with a smile, and she immediately made me feel at ease. She had piles of books and papers all around her home, which is probably something we come to expect from people who live the life of the mind. We'd never met before, but we seemed to hit it off right away. At least her warmth made me feel that way. I admit I was a little starstruck, but she was very easy to talk to. We sat in what looked like a favorite room of hers, under the shadow of a large 1968 Philip Perlstein painting of Nocklin and her architectural historian husband, Richard Palmer. When I asked her about the work, she called it her wedding portrait. And it's a fine painting that challenges the notion of wedding portraiture, since Nocklin and her partner look almost bored as they don't directly engage the viewer, but actually appear to avoid us. Or maybe we caught them in an odd situation at a moment they weren't expecting. It's an untraditional portrait, which seems appropriate for a figure who pushed us to see things in new ways. We sat down to talk, And I started by asking her why she thought it took so long for someone to focus an exhibition on the female artists of abstract expressionism. Well, I think 
that is very odd in a way because there has been work on them, writing about them, in very big interest in them. They've had museum shows. Certainly, Joan Mitchell has. Certainly, um, what's her name? Krasner, and several other individual women art abstract expressionists have had shows and attention and writing about them and so on. Why there hasn't been a show of them as a group is a very interesting question. I guess because nobody thought about it, and they sort of should have, <laughs> because they are an interesting group. The question being, uh, or one of the questions is, can you tell just from looking at women's abstract expressionist canvases that they have to be by women? Are there any signs of gender or difference in their work? Uh, And I think that's a very interesting question because the whole nature of such an exhibition is in some ways modified or tinted, tainted, shall we say, by the notion that women per se naturally quote a horrible word, which I never use, leave some trace of their gender identity in whatever they create. Could I say that the Elaine de Kooning was by a woman? It's very, you know, if you equate being a woman, being delicate and uh, sort of uh, light and elegant or I don't know, whatever you do, like a Vato painting. Mm -hmm. That is, to me, a feminine painting, quite deliberately. Uh, Or a Fragonard, in some cases. Or the Rococo genres, in general, have been denominated feminine. Mm -hmm. And there's not a trace of that, as far as I can see, in any of the work on show by the women abstract expressionists. They look much more like canvases by male abstract expressionists. And, of course, that's the case with most women artists, maybe until now, under deliberation. Their work tends to look, interestingly, more like the male artists of their time than by the, like the work of other women artists separated from them by centuries. I mean, it's just a fact. Mm-hmm. As a leading art historian, why did she think figures like Joan Mitchell, Lee Krasner, and others were written out of the art history years after they had been an active part of forming it? Because people who are not deliberately thinking about it are not going to think about it. You know, they just take what has been given, the doxa, and repeat it and repeat it and repeat it. And they don't bother to branch out unless they have some purpose in doing so. And I think this is going to continue. And you might also ask the question, are the male abstract expressionists as a group better, more powerful, more innovative, uh, more worth looking at? That's a question. How would you answer that question? I don't know. I think, you know, somebody like Joan Mitchell is absolutely undifferentiable in terms of quality, if I dare to use such a word, 
uh, from any of her male contemporaries. And then there's another question. Is it just a question of doing an occasional terrific painting, or is it a consistent uh, one? Uh, the other question is, of course, innovation. Are the women artists as innovative? Are they presenting something new as strongly? And I remember when I was pretty young, the head of our department at Vassar, where, where I had been a student and where I was a very young teacher, I was in my early 20s, uh, the head of our department was a marvelous woman named Agnes Claflin, and she invited women artists up to talk, and there was a, a lot of women work in our collection, not because she was a feminist in any overt sense of the word, but because she taught at Vassar, built up the department, she believed that women and their work were as interesting and good as men, and they, she probably could get them a lot cheaper, too, and she knew what she liked. We had the most beautiful Florine Stettheimer in our library. Oh, we had a Georgia O'Keeffe. We had all sorts of things. And anyway, Grace Hartigan came up to talk, and I was just blown away. I was blown away. First of all, she came up dressed in jeans and a black turtleneck sweater, you know. Everyone else came in a neat suit with high heels. No. And she used vile language, which very much <laughs> struck me. <laughs> she used curse words and so on without even thinking of it. And she was very clear about what she was doing. And I loved her work. You know, those store windows, they just got me, those brides and the store windows. I thought they were fabulous. And of course, I didn't think pre-feminism... I really didn't think of whether it was by a girl or a boy. I mean, it just didn't interest me. It was just terrific painting, and this was such an interesting, forceful person. It was a very interesting thing to do, to invite women artists up to talk. They weren't all like that, by any means. But she was part of this very vanguard group, and I thought those... Um, women on the, you know, wearing the wedding dresses and so on. I thought those were brilliant and very innovative. Sort of a little bit like what Larry, um, what's his name, was doing to bring the, the figure sort of back in through Larry Rivers. I just saw Birdie. Where did I see the mystery? Oh, I guess at the Whitney uh, portrait show. And again, it just <laughs> knocked my socks off. And yeah. What were the reactions when Grace Hardigan came? Because it was an era where female artists were still probably not as prominent. No, so, they weren't. But, right. So how did people but, react to that? Were there like certain, what were the conversations? Was all women. But what were the conversations going on? Were people like excited by the fact she was a woman or were they kind yeah, of? Yeah, I think uh, they were. Sure they were. Um, but they knew to just accept her as an artist and not to bring womanness up at that time. That would be considered, in a way, insulting, pre-feminism. She was an artist, and she was a big-time artist, and she was a powerful artist, and she had a style, and these were wonderful pictures. We had a show of her work, of course. So it's interesting that if you sort of unconsciously, as we Vassar people did, believed that in women's equality, you just didn't ask that question. You just accepted them as first-rate artists, and you were very glad to see their work, and we were 
brought one and all that. Did it, do you feel like you're saying you did ask that question, but were you and your colleagues, were they, you were trying to erase that aspect? Because, I mean, at the same time, was no, it, did it? not really. Okay. We were trying to naturalize women's presence in the world of art. There were so many works by women artists in our collection. We had women, we had uh, not just Grace, we had Irene Rice Pereira, we had one of hers, and she came up to talk. Uh, our sculpture teacher, Conchetta Scarvaglione, was a woman and a prominent one. She had done a lot of stuff in the WPA, you know, public works. We had a woman painting teacher, uh, Rosemary Beck, who was just marvelous. I don't know, we sort of, going to Vassar and teaching at Vassar, at least for me since I'd gone there, I just expected that women would do what men did and be just as good at it. That was... Of course, that illusion broke down once you left Vassar, and all our wonderful students became head of the PTA in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, instead of doing anything. But we had a lot of, at the time, doctors, lawyers, professional women, people who did things, but just nothing like now was not expected in any sense. So it was a strange set of contradictions that, you know, we sort of accepted that women were going to be artists, but we must have been aware that they were not showing quite as much as men and were not getting as much talk. But I, I guess it just didn't, didn't think about it until the woman's movement. You need a movement to crystallize what that's all about. Otherwise, it can mean a whole lot of things, you know? Like I said, Grace Hardy can just seem like a marvel, like a creature from another world, a woman of power and force and so on. But that didn't mean that we immediately thought, oh, why are women being excluded? You know, we didn't think of that. We were accepting her. And we were having women coming up and talking to us all the time. So it's very contradictory. The women's movement came as a big crash. <laughs> you know, it really... It really was like an, uh, 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 what's that word? That opens your yes, eyes. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, what happened to St. Paul? <laughs> and he yeah, fell off have, his horse. Um, uh, yes. Epiphany. Epiphany, epiphany, that's right. Epiphanos, yes. It was like an epiphany. It really was. And it would happen more and more and more. And then you'd sort of see what was really going on in the world and how women were being treated and how they were being excluded, and how, despite that all, some of them were very triumphant. And in a way, it's always, if you are one of the major exceptions, it is always an advantage to be one of the excluded, you know. I mean, Rosa Bonheur was the leading, in terms of popularity, the leading artist of the 19th century. Probably more people knew her work, certainly, than Manet or Cezanne or anything. People had, and also, she was very canny. She had contract with the most famous printmaker of all time. So if you couldn't afford a Bonheur, which who could, everyone had a print of the horse fair in their home. Everyone knew who she was. But she was very much looked down on by the avant-garde, of course. This just, I'm just going to pause it for a second. 
So there's a quote in your essay about uh, a rage to paint Joan Mitchell in the issue of femininity yeah. that I wanted to bring up because I think it's very yeah. relevant to the abstract expressionist right. particularly, right. which is biography, in fact, often looms large in such cases precisely because of the absence of recognizable subject matter. The gesture seems to constitute a direct link to the psyche of the artist, without even an apple or a jug to mediate the emotional velocity of the feeling in question. Now, that would suggest to me that a movement like abstract expressionism would actually foreground women's identity in their work. Yeah, but I don't think that's true. I say seems or something. I mean, naturally, as I say, all art is mediated. And abstract expressionism, very strongly, by other art, previous art, uh, hypothetical art, whatever you want to say. I mean, nothing is simply a direct gesture. Even if you go like that, splat, you're splatting with Picasso in the back of your mind and, uh, you know, other splatty artists before you. <laughs> An expressionist artist, Munch or something. But I think some of the abstract expressionists struggled very hard to get rid of that past, that, that mediation. So in this... is very hard. I mean, Picasso struggled at times to draw like a child. It's very hard for an adult-trained artist to forget all the laws of perspective and foreshortening and all that. You can look at some of the people like John Flaxman at the end of the uh, 18th century who is trying to be a, quote, primitive, to look like a pre-classical Greek. And he always forgets he was just a little foreshortening. He can't, can't resist. He gets a, a little anatomy. In the, to get rid of that is hard work. I once had a party with my friend a draw-like-a-child party to see if anyone could, using my own daughter's kitty stuff as a, uh, uh, a comparison. And practically no adult could really draw like a child. And in a certain sense, getting rid of any mediation or is, is almost impossible. And you know, when Picasso saw a Jackson Pollock, he said, oh my God, he said, everything that I have struggled not to fall into, he did. You know, he felt that Pollock had removed all barriers to whatever it was. So I, I don't know. I think the, the critique, I suppose, is always that women abstract expressionists were not innovators, and it was terribly important for abstract expressionism to be original, to go back to origins, to get rid of influence and so on. And I think that was the one of the major things. If you didn't have balls, you couldn't be an innovator in that way. So what else were the factors that were mediating women's painting or women artists and their work? Like, what were those maybe they're obstacles, or maybe you'll call them um, structures that didn't exist. I don't know. What what were they? Well, I think the social order was <laughs> the main thing. I don't think necessarily a lot of that should have been in the, in the shows of abstract expressionism right along with the men. But 
it was seen as uh, sort of secondary, after the fact, imitated, unoriginal. It didn't... I mean, it was sort of a, a begging the question. If you didn't have balls and a penis, you couldn't be original. So, <laughs> I mean, that's what some of those guys were really thinking, if they thought about it at all. So do you think that the female artists, or most of them, were unoriginal of that abstract expressionist movement? Well, I'm not such a, a proponent of originality. I mean, so I'm not sure that whatever we mean by originality, can there be originality? Yes, at Jackson Pollock, when we first saw it, I remember going to those shows. I was I just couldn't believe it. I mean, they were so different from anything, anything I had ever seen. There was no point saying that it was. It was. It was like a, a shot, you know. It was uh, amazing. Just as when I first saw the first Rauschenberg show with the goat and all that. I was a very good person because even though I knew art very well, I really got knocked off my feet by things that were this new. Of course, I had not seen intermediary stages or evolution. I just went to the big shows and that was that. But they were original. There's no question. At least, you know, to the public they were. And how about the work uh, of Lee Krasner? How about, I mean, during that period, was she seen as original? Was, was Elaine de Kooning seen as original? Or was Joan well, Mitchell knew, seen I that knew, way? I knew Lee. I mean, she glommed on to me, or we glommed on to each other, at the beginning of the woman's movement, very early. And I took a group of Vassar students, seniors, at the seminar, down to New York when she was having a big one-woman show. Must have been in the middle 60s, I guess. And I wish I could remember where it was, whether it was the Whitney or somewhere, or a gallery. Big show. And I took them around, and we talked, and another woman joined up with us as we were going around, and Lee was with us. I remember I, I liked the work. I admired it. And... At the end of it, this woman, who we never had clapped eyes on, came up to me and said, Oh, I loved your talk, but why are you talking about such awful work? <laughs> Lee standing there, like, really very embarrassed. And it was actually quite good work. And I've learned to appreciate it still more now. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think she's a very good artist, but she's not an artist that makes me... Extremely excited, let's put it that way. But who did she think were the most notable women of the movement? Who did she think would be remembered in the same breath as the other painters? Of all of those, I mean, Joan Mitchell is, to me, the one. The most brilliant, truly original, and aesthetically powerful. Yeah, I mean, I think she is the the major woman, if you have to. I suppose uh, what's her name uh, is also very good. Uh, Helen Frankenthaler. I would say, probably I'm, I'm leaving out somebody who I love, I just can't remember. 
but those two on very different scales in a way like like Rothko versus de Kooning you might say those two are and I would say those are major artists those two women they really are no what? question well, one of the things I noticed is there were a lot of women showing in some of those 10th Street shows. Yes. And, and, yes. But then when it came time to write the history, when it came time to actually, like, after the movement sort of ended... It was like women couldn't figure in that. They just weren't... It's a, it was kind of natural. You look at any art history textbook for the last hundred years and see how many women are mentioned in it. Say, practically none in most of them. But were people conscious in the 60s that all of a sudden these women were being swept aside? In the 60s. Or so was no, that? No, I think until the woman's movement, until it became a conscious, theoretical and activist program, people didn't notice. Maybe some people noticed. I'm sure the women who were excluded noticed. Yeah. But... Did they write about it that much? Not that much. Grace did a little. In case you were wondering, the Grace she mentioned is journalist Grace Glick, who's best remembered as a New York Times art writer and editor from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. She wrote more than most about women in the arts during that period. You read, for instance, I love English mystery stories. I love the ones from the 30s and 40s. They are all, without almost any exception, so anti-Semitic. Just the normal parlance. Oh, he's an ugly little Jew, isn't he? Or Constantly. People that you would never think of as necessarily. Niall Marsh, Agatha Christie, bless her heart. I mean, Jews, I mean, the names are made fun of or they're moneylenders or cruel or un- unpleasant or have no manners or trying to make their way. I mean, they're always depicted badly. This is taken for granted. It isn't that these people are necessarily overt anti-Semites. This is the way you thought. And I think that was true about women artists. And the irony being that in the big, bold United States... Artists were a thought of certain pansies or et cetera, et cetera, effeminate. And the abstract expressionists made sure that that was not the case, that they were real men. I mean, and the, the maleness, I think, was very important. They didn't want to get mixed up with women. Do you think that's why maybe it's taken so long for women in Abax? I think partly. That is much the case. That the low opinion of artists, you know. Though, I mean, we had very, you know, important artists before them. One of whom was a woman. Look at Georgia O'Keeffe. She was probably the best known modernist artist of the period. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about Joan Mitchell. Because, I mean, she... is a person. Well, a person, but also, you know, because one of the things about your essay that really made an impact on me was this differentiating between rage and anger. And because that, again, we were talking about the masculine 
yeah. persona that the Abexers were really sort of championing, I think. Maybe yeah. that's the word. Do you think that that was necessary for her to be counted and to have a place? Well, she was a fierce character. Um, she was now a little sweet, shrinking violet. She was very intelligent. She came from an upper-class family. She had had a very good education. I mean, she was not uh, a person who had to come up from nothing. And she had had a very good art education. I think her mother was associated with that poetry magazine out in Chicago or something. I mean, she came from circles that understood poetry, art, etc. I don't think she had a hard time of it. She had some difficult relationships. She had money, that was nice, and she had this beautiful house in which Monet had lived in the gardener's cottage that I used to go out and see her at. Um, she often, I think, was, was unhappy, but she always worked, no matter what, and she drank a lot. A lot of the, the male abex, she, in that, she, she was certainly one of the boys in that, because drinking was... I don't know if you can say looked on with favor, but it was certainly done in excess by many of the painters. Her personal friendship with Joan Mitchell came up again and again. So I wondered if the artist had openly discussed the way she felt about being ignored compared to her male counterparts. All artists complain. They could be the most popular artist that there is. Yeah, sure, she complained. And complained that men got something and she didn't, and blah, blah, blah. But she also admired and uh, liked some men or male artists, too. I mean, it wasn't, she wasn't totally unreasonable about it. But, yeah, she did feel, and she was, in a sense. You know, she didn't get big shows at big museums till quite late, as opposed to... Some of her male contemporaries, yeah. And how did she see the feminist movement in terms of, because now all of a sudden this yeah. thing showed up on the scene and is, was sort of looking at our history anew, and maybe in ways that may contradicted yeah. what, what she well, maybe she thought. Wasn't, she wasn't a kind of a card-carrying feminist, but she was against a world that kept her out, yes. I mean, that's... It's hard to say. I don't think she was a self-conscious feminist. She was mean to women like she was mean to men. Yeah. Mm. And sometimes even her good friends, whom she'd had for years. Can you um, give us a little sense of sort of the social milieu we're talking about here? In terms Uh, of when you went to a gallery opening, were there certain things women were expected not to do? Could you, like, go up and just talk to anybody? Was there, I mean, I'm trying to understand because I know there's a social history there that some of us aren't aware of. Okay, I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah, I I don't think there was an active fear on the part of women of going up and talking. No, of course not. I think they were very, I think somebody like Grace or Joan or... uh, you know, some of the big women artists, sure. They, I don't think it was like, 
you know, in Manet's time, where Beth Morisot had to get somebody to take her to things, or uh, Mary Cassette was very indignant because people didn't want her to attend a show by herself. She wanted to do it and so on. Who was that, I'm sorry? Mary Cassatt. No, it wasn't. I think you could more or less do what you wanted. But I have to tell you something funny. In 19, what was it? Must have been in the 60s. My mother-in-law, a girlfriend of mine, were trying to get into a, a quite elegant bar near 57th Street. And we were not allowed because we were three women together. You had to have a man with you. Otherwise, you were considered to be a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, my elderly mother-in-law is hard. But, but no, women asking for seats in bars were not allowed for that reason. Isn't that interesting? Did that include the club? Oh, I don't think so. I don't know. I didn't go to that very often. I knew Keesler. That's how I got to that. Yeah, Frederick Keesler. Um, I went once or twice. Really very uh, brave. <laughs> brave. <laughs> Enterprise. Was there a difference between being allowed into downtown bars as opposed to midtown or oh, uptown? Probably. Okay. Probably. I don't think. This was Myers. I think that was very elegant. But, I mean, you don't think about that. Can you imagine anyone now telling two or three women going to a bar that they can't come without a male escort? Please. I mean, things we take for granted now were not so take-for-grantable at, at that time, really. And how about in terms of um, the writers, the critics? Yeah. You know, like, they're, were they treated as equals? Well, there are a lot of big-time... Critics, and of course now I can't remember their names, and I knew them too, who wrote about, oh, there's Betsy Baker, who was the editor, uh, co-editor first of Art News along with Tom Hess, and then the editor of Art in America. Now that's a powerful figure. She also happens to be one of my two or three best friends. I see her all the time now. But I mean, she had power. A lot of gallery owners were women. So they didn't necessarily show women artists by any means. But there were a lot of big-time gallery owners who were women. Uh, There were women. Barbara Rose was certainly a very important and powerful figure writing art criticism. I'm sure there, what's her name, uh, Catherine Koo, even before that. No, I think women, uh, maybe there weren't as many, but they certainly were a powerful presence, I would say. Mm-hmm. So what was holding them back from, you well, know, or holding them back in terms of maybe including these women in histories or writing about them more prominently or addressing some of the issues that may have been unique? They just didn't think about it until you have a formation, a consciousness raising. The con- consciousness was not raised. There are a lot of things... They might have asked, why aren't there more blacks being written about? And nobody asked. There are a few. But generally, it was just accepted there weren't going to be too many black artists showing or being talked about at all. There were some, few, few, few. 
But that's how it is with the dachshund. That's how it is. You just accept that's how it is. And then suddenly a person says or a few people say, hey, why? But it has to be part to me anyway. People don't notice it. Unless, or they notice it and they flick it off like a fly, you know, unless it's part of a kind of organized and self-conscious. And then, wow, does it come. But we're still facing that today, and that's kind of one of the questions I'm also, why I'm interested in this question, because even today, I mean, certainly women are not represented in the art world, at least not on every level, certainly, other than maybe art students, where you still kind of see a lot more maybe female students, but soon as it starts going up and they become in terms of... Yeah, well, you probably have more uh, female curators than you used to have, you certainly do. The Museum of Modern Art is a very good example. Hmm? has a very strong woman's presence of the curatorial right at the top. I riffed off the point that the Museum of Modern Art had strong female curators, and I asked her, what was missing then? Why aren't things changing faster? The conversation turned to the idea of oppression and its impact on art, an important topic. Nochlin believed it was a big factor. You know, I think a group that has been oppressed does not produce in quite the same way as an unoppressed group. <laughs> not at all the same way. The same amount, the same vigor, the same, quote, originality. But I think discoveries are made all the time. You know, in other countries like Poland, wonderful women artists we've had shows of. No, they're not household words yet. But I think, you know, little by little, or lots by lot, women artists are are coming up. I mean, look at some of the recent, let's say, MoMA shows. Hmm? There have been people I've never heard of, and one or two I can't pronounce, but I think they are simply marvelous women artists. I mean, just wonderful. Um... The Bauhaus show revealed, I think, to one extent, there were powerful women presences in the Bauhaus, too. That is, there could be new ways of looking at past movements that might bring out some of it. Then do you think that there's a role or maybe the way we write history might be involved in this kind of exclusion? Yeah, I think absolutely it would be. Absolutely it would be. But... On the other hand, as I say, I think oppression works. It has always worked. Those who are oppressed, not given education, expected not to express themselves publicly, uh, are supposed to be supporting members of society. You know, all you have to do is, is read Simone de Beauvoir. She's got it all in there that women do not have any, you know, long-term goals. They're just there to do the material stuff, to keep the boat afloat, so to speak. And if, if you're brought up with that as a thought, you're ruined. You really have to work hard to get out of that because it's in your head it isn't necessarily, you know, overtly out there in the world. And I think lack of confidence, lack of a feeling that you can be large, you can transcend, you can transcend, 
the word is transcendence. That's what she said. Women were brought up. Part of becoming a woman was to understand that you had no transcendence, that you were imminent. Everything was just day to day. But read her. She has all of that in there, and she explains very well why things are as they are, both historically and contemporaneously. Now, was that something that you've noticed, or is that something that happened in other movements or in other types of artistic? Because I know that your own epiphany happened a little bit in California um, when you saw, yeah. when, when you went yeah. there and you saw Woman House and all these other types of yeah. projects. And I'm just wondering whether that distance partly. was partly... But that was, eh, I don't know, maybe. I think uh, New York women figured it out pretty soon, too, <laughs> I think. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm not that familiar with California, and I, I just can't really say. But um, we did have our, our first woman's show, the historical one, out in California, and partly because the women artists out there demanded it. They wanted to show that there was a history to women. So in that way, they were kind of interested in the history more well, not for more. themselves. Okay. Not more, but they wanted a, something to back up. You know, I mean, male artists have thousands of years to fall back on, so to speak. And, you know, you read somebody like Harold Bloom, The Anxiety of Influence, and he may emphasize it more than one might think, but... The idea of that you're part of an inheritance and a kind of dialectic of inheritance that Shakespeare is sort of both emulated and knocked out by Milton and then Milton and Keats or something. So that there is this whole, what shall I say, chain, a great chain of creativity in the male world. Do you try that with women? Hard. Harder. In the early feminist movement, what did they actually think about abstract expressionism, or did they even think about it? Well, that's very interesting, because very quickly, I think, a lot of women artists rejected that as male stuff. Painting itself got rejected as a masculine-dominated activity by many women. Didn't do that. You did cloth work or collage or performance or something else that was not as infected with male domination. So that was one, but there were so many different branches. I can't say that was the only one, but that was one idea that painted was kind of had been taken over too much by men that it was hopeless. And finally, what did early feminists think about the other art movements of the era? Did they just see them all as part of the patriarchy? It was even more a rejection of, um, what do you call it? You know, one color flat, uh, field, color field. That was seen as the real enemy. Well, that's interesting considering the... I mean, the true kind of the person who people associate with the beginning of Colorfield was often Helen Frankenthaler. No, so, no, 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 no. The strict... You know, flat color field, and then the decor, the pattern and decoration was seen as a kind of feminine response to color field, that was you know, kind of decorative and all over, and, and so uh, yeah, look into pattern and decoration, which was very much seen as 
against the standard color field domination of the time. How, how about the relationship of uh, feminism and pop art? Ah, that is very interesting, because I have a student, a former student, who's been very active in, the, in rediscovering female pop artists and reinserting women into the pop art world. And she, that is Calliope Miniodaki. And she and other people have done, there was a show in Philadelphia, female pop, and so on. I mean, you look around. I mean, in, in the case of pop, you really have to work hard. But she found some very interesting artists who had been quite well-known in their own time. Was that part of the conversations of the emergence of feminism in art history and in art? Were people thinking about pop art and their relationship to it? <sighs> yeah, I suppose somewhere, but somehow women didn't get much footage in there somehow. You'd think it would have been an ideal venue, so to speak. But And there were some important women pop artists who were being rediscovered, but they didn't make a splash like Andy Warhol. <laughs> no. I guess I'm finding it really interesting how you're talking about Colorfield being mm-hmm. kind of like the opposition, the enemy, the enemy yeah, right? At one point. And, mm-hmm. But I, I guess looking back, I've never thought of it as a masculine mm-hmm. thing. It doesn't, or at least it's, it doesn't uh, seem that way to me. So I'm kind of curious, did it feel ideological? Did it-, it, it felt masculine, simplified, um, without any delicacy or, I don't know, whatever it was they wanted, decoration, pattern decoration, no, something that was more associated with feminine. And Helen Frankenthaler never factored in and people Maybe. didn't see her? Yes, yes, she did. People had all kinds of <laughs> theories and ideas, many of which I didn't share, like centralized imagery, God forbid. I mean, you know, because women have a uterus, they have to do centralized imagery. I mean... You know, like that I, was an actual oh, idea yes. that people had. Judy Chicago and Miriam Shapiro, and you know, they were very much into centralized imagery. Like even Lucy Laporte had a little bit, but you know, as though this was natural to women. Women. I mean, it's also if you look, asymmetry goes with added sophistication. Sort of so-called primitive peoples do very centralized things, but you aren't allowed to say that. And after all, men are centralized, too, in a certain <laughs> <laughs> may not be a, a womb, but, you know, there is something in the middle there. Uh, no, I never believed in that at all. I thought it was fine. If you wanted to make up a theory and base your art on, around it, fine. But don't tell me it's nature made women do centralized imagery. No. So do you think there are a lot of things that the story of abstract expressionism is still missing? Do you think it's still missing? Well, I mean, people have been looking up, you know, black people who were involved in it and finding some. Uh, Sure, they're probably women. I don't know what else are you going to find. But I, I... I think this woman show, Women Abstract, should be a very interesting show. I'm interested to see what people will say about it, because it's such a, an interesting topic, as you can see. I mean, what you want to make of it. 
are we going back to some kind of essentialism? God forbid, I hope not. So what danger do you see in that essentialism? Well, that there's some natural way for women to paint through all time. And I think, as I say, I think women artists of any period look much more like the male artists of their period, as do the women abstract expressionists. I mean, a woman abstract expressionist looks less like Mary Cassatt than she looks like Willem de Kooning. <laughs> I mean, that's just obvious. Um, nor do I think women should feel some sort of obligation to make their work look like women's work. I hope they don't. Um, you know, if they want to, they can. I mean, they're, they're, they may be very interesting. I think um, Paula Modison Becker, who had a marvelous show in France recently, I mean, she was attempting to sort of unite Cezanne with, not feminism, femininity with what she thought of as earthy femininity, you know, pictures of mothers and babies and peasant women or so on. And she was, she died when she was in her early 30s. So it's hard to say what she would have done. But she was trying to do a kind of feminine essentialism seen through Cezanne. I mean, which is a fascinating idea. I wish I had the catalog of that show. It must be wonderful. So, I mean, I think women have thought in different ways. Somebody like Florine Stettheimer, what an interesting example. She hated Beethoven. I hate Beethoven, she wrote. And uh, she loved Mozart, that's what she loved. She knew what that was all about. So she very deliberately made her work feminine, even the frames, everything. One of the uh, interesting things you mentioned was when you talk about Joan Mitchell, and you also said Helen Frankenthaler might be kind of two of the figures that are some of the most prominent. They were also two of the most affluent, I would say, of that circle. Now, do you really think that was a huge part of that? Do you think it's because they had that freedom? Or what, what do you think yeah, that I think it role helps. Of course, money helps. But money often doesn't help. If you have to be a society woman and make your debut and conform to that kind of life, you're not going to have too much time for making art. <laughs> so what was art. unique about both of them, you think? Well, you know, Helen Frankenthaler came from a certain kind of New York circle. She went to Dalton, where she had excellent art. What was that? He, there's a museum about him in Mexico. Uh, um, he taught there. Tamaya. Rufino mm. Tamaya. She came from a place where art was important. And the Dalton School, of course, would have. And then she lived with men who were big in art. Just as George O'Keefe had her big man, she did too. Joan Mitchell came from a world where art and poetry and so on were valued. Went to art school in Chicago. So they, they, they were not nobody. I mean, they didn't come from uncultured, uncultivated, uncultured places. But they also weren't imprisoned by what you said, sort of in terms of the no, socialite no, culture no, or no, becoming mothers or it something. It was a like possibility that. to be bohemian, to be 
uh, poetic or whatnot. It was, it was, you know, there was a dance world. I'm sort of the same age as uh, Frankenthaler, maybe a little younger. I don't know, or older. But, you know, there was a, a world of culture there, and that encouraged, uh, if you got in the right part of it, it was an avant-garde world. You know, that wasn't frowned on or looked on as crazy. There were plenty of uh, avant-garde outlets and, and in many fields. So I think that's part of it, you know. Well, it's great. Thank you so much. I hope I, you know, <laughs> said something or other. I guess I did. No, yeah. that, was, that was very useful. So we are talking to Linda Nochlin about women of abstract expressionists. Thanks so much, Linda. Oh, you're welcome. This was really fun. I love to talk <laughs> about this. <laughs> the music featured on this episode was Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 4 in G, Movement 1, Allegro, which is one of the most renowned compositions by Johann Sebastian Bach, who, as I mentioned, was Nachlin's favorite composer. I'm Hrag Vartanyan, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week. <laughs>